Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, my guest on the show today is Light Watkins. Light is a meditation teacher, author, and spiritual nomad of sorts. In 2018, inspired by the minimalist movement, Light decided to forsake all of his personal possessions that did not conform to a singular backpack, and he became a serial global wanderer. So in our conversation, we explore the contents of that very backpack, perhaps as an excavation into discovering what in life is truly necessary. We discuss his new book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which emerged from his daily gems of wisdom that he deploys to a global email list. Alight reads excerpts from his book, and we poke at myriad spiritual and societal riddles, like the conceptual mind's need for certainty, how to get comfortable with discomfort, the importance of conversations and the grace that we need to show each other while having them. We discuss how to learn from rejection and the liberation that comes with forgiveness. I always feel right at home with light, and I think this conversation is reflective of the warmth that we share for each other. So without further impediment, here's my conversation with Light Watkins. Okay, Light Watkins, hello. Welcome. Hey, man. Good to be with you. Always, always yeah. great to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Um, where does the the world find you today? Today, I am in Atlanta. My family lives in Atlanta, and uh, and I was just in Los Angeles for a week, and uh, and I'm heading back to Mexico City, where I've been posting up for the last uh, several months. Yeah. Um, I always like to ask people where they are, but I think that uh, it's particularly apt as an inquiry for you, <laughs> <laughs> given your vocation as professional nomad. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think that might 
be an appropriate place to start our discussion mm. uh, since in uh, your brilliant new book, you, you uh, write extensively about nomading and I suppose the intersection between nomading and inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, I guess I'd ask you, what was the inspiration for eschewing all known worldly possessions and, and and where has that journey taken you in the last couple of years? Yeah, it's interesting. I went nomadic in 2018, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it just means that I moved out of my place of residence. I got rid of my uh, my lease and I sold off all of my belongings or I gave away uh, or sold off all of my belongings that did not fit in. At the time, I had a carry-on bag. The The largest carry-on bag you can fit on the airplane on the overhead compartment was 22 inches. So I went and found the best 22-inch carry-on bag from the luggage store because that was going to effectively be my new apartment. And then I experimented with like how much stuff I could fit in there to give me an, a sense of what all I needed to give away. Now I had a two bedroom apartment, closets, everything, garage full of stuff, car. So I got rid of all of that stuff and, um, and, uh, put in, I don't know, a week and a half's worth of clothing into this carry on bag and started. I was still actually doing what I was doing before. I was on the road a lot. I was I was leading train meditation trainings and retreats and doing 108s, a lot of wanderlust events. In fact, that was the excuse I used to speak of inspiration. I was inspired by my schedule because I think that year was the year Bliss More, my last book, came out, which is the meditation book. And you guys had me on the schedule for, I think, 12 or 13 wanderlust events uh, over the span of the year. And so I figured I would use that as an opportunity to practice living exclusively from this carry-on bag in various Airbnbs and whatnot. And and, um, so that's how it started. And then eventually, after about a year or so, I realized that I uh, I needed to downsize. So I went from the carry-on bag to a backpack, which was kind of the plan all along was just to keep, you know, editing my things down to just the essentials. Cause I also have this idea of, of writing my next book about minimalism and nomading and stuff. So it was really intentional around that. I got rid of my, my uh, laptop and I just had an iPad to see how that would work. And, you know, every time I, I scaled down a bit, I just make it work. It's, there were some inconveniences obviously with everything, but just make it work. So it's been fun. It's been a fun process. I've learned how to wash clothes in the sink, you know. Yeah, I'm curious as to the contents of, of one's backpack when it mm. comprises all of one's possessions. And I, I will say just before I pry into your personal life, um, you know, Wayne Dyer, who was instrumental in introducing me to meditation and personal development, um, also kind of eschewed all worldly possessions at, at one point in his life and moved to Maui to live the Tao. And mm. uh, he spent, uh, I believe there's 81 verses in the Tao. And I, I believe he spent w- three or four days l- living each verse. 
wow. over the course of, well, that would be a whole year, right? About 324 days. Um, and, uh, and that really struck me as just a, a very bold and extreme choice to, especially to be making inside this kind of consumer society. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder, and you can divulge the contents of your bag if you like, there's no pressure, but I wonder what some of the joys and challenges of living that minimally have been over the past couple of years. You know, this, I mean, first of all, I want to say that um, I'm a huge fan of Wayne Dyer. He's got a great story. I've, I've yeah. recently, I kind of dip in and out of his story when I'm, when I'm on the hunt for inspiration for my daily dose of inspiration emails. And um, so I've been reading about his leap of faith from a college professor and into author self-help persona, which is really cool. And I always remember what you said about him, where he kind of pulled you to the side one day and told you to stay close to the work. And I think about that for myself as well, which is uh, cool. I didn't know he, he actually... He did a whole minimalism thing. That's really interesting. I need to dig a little deeper into that. So, yeah, what's in the bag? You know, nothing really sexy is in the bag. <laughs> um, it's literally basics. It's like, and now, now that I'm, I'm a podcaster, you know, I have all my podcast stuff, microphone. This microphone that I'm speaking with is in my bag, so that takes up space. I would say the things that that would surprise people. Um, aside from just the basics, toiletries and underwear and stuff like that, is uh, I have a meditation puja kit. I carry that around. That's a, that's an essential item in my bag because without that item, I can't really do what I do in the world. So, and that takes up a good, I would say, one sixth of my whole backpack is my med- meditation teaching puja kit with trays and bowls and rice and supplies and all of that stuff. So that's interesting. <laughs> that, um, that is interesting. Uh, that's 16.66% of your life there. So yeah. so we know where that sits in the hierarchy of light that's watching right. needs. <laughs> that's right. And then I have yeah. my tripod is in there. I have a light, an LED light, and I have mm-hmm. my microphone. So I have like a bunch of gadget, gadget stuff. I have backup batteries blah, blah, blah. But then as far as like just clothing, I've got two pairs of shoes. Um, one is a running shoe and one is a regular, my white sort of tennis shoes. I have a suit jacket and then I have one button down shirt, one pair of jeans, two pairs of shorts. One is a workout short that can also double as swim trunks. And then I have like five t-shirts. One is worn a tour long sleeve. Uh, a couple of them have buttons on them in case I need to wear them to kind of look dressed up. And, uh, and then I have like four or five pairs of underwear and, um, and that's it. But let's say I go f- to a place like I go to London or New York or someplace and it's cold. I would just, I'll go to some fast casual store and buy a parka jacket or something and I'll use it for the time I'm there. And then I'll donate it to a secondhand store. Hmm. So I'm, I'm more of like a hunter gatherer where I get rid of things that I don't need seasonally and I acquire new things that I may need so that I can keep everything nice and compact. And every five or six months, I'll like replace my 
t-shirts and underwear and stuff just because it starts falling apart. If you're wearing the same thing every three or four days, it starts, uh, doesn't hold up very well. So I learned not to buy really expensive clothing because it just doesn't, doesn't hold up very well over if you wear it a lot. Yeah. I think that sometimes I, I term, um, this COVID-19 lockdown as, as forced monasticism, because I think a lot of people, they could have a full closet of clothes, but they're still only wearing like three or four t-shirts, right? They're just still going back to those essential things. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, uh, you, you kind of imposed an editing system on yourself. Um, and how much of this decision to live the life the way you did um, is almost uh, a self-imposed um, challenge to deal with discomfort? Because, and maybe this is a good springboard into talking about inspiration, because you do talk about inspiration, you know, quite eloquently um, as a as almost addressing the inner critic and its demands for safety and certainty. Um, you know, the conceptual mind seems to always gravitate towards having to know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wonder, you know, is, is if you could maybe unpack how you've begun to understand inspiration within the context of your journey. Yeah, I think you you just hit the nail right on the head. Um, it it is about being uncomfortable. You know, I read. You know, I don't know if you know Dane Cook. He's a comedian. Mm, yeah. And back when he was first starting to get popular, I used to go see him at uh, Dublin's in West Hollywood. He would perform an open mic there every Tuesday night when I first moved to LA back in two thousand and two. And my buddy and I would go up there every Tuesday night and there'd be a host of comedians, but he was always the headliner and he was always the funniest. He was always killing every single Tuesday night. Hmm. And I, so I was obsessed with him and his work back then. And I remember he was written up in, I think, Details Magazine or something. And he said this quote that I always remember. He said, he said that his, his goal in life was to put a big, fat, lazy boy chair in the middle of his uncomfortable his, his, uh, uncomfort zone and to find <laughs> comfort in discomfort because that was the key to him really kind of, um, creating the, the platform to, to, uh, impact more people. And, uh, but it, that was more of a confirmation than anything else. Cause at that point I had been playing with the edge of my own comfort zone for many years. And, uh, and just before I moved to Los Angeles when I was 29, I actually made a commitment to myself to always follow my heart, to relentlessly follow my heart. And what I learned from that commitment is that it following your heart never takes you to a place that's more comfortable. It actually is the opposite. It, it, it takes you to places that make you uncomfortable. And so I kind of put the two and two together and, and just realized that if you want to do anything of note, if you want to feel like you're being yourself, if you want to live your most authentic life, then you have to get comfortable with discomfort. And um, so, yeah, a lot of the work around inspiration is really inspiring people to 
find their own edge, whatever their version of becoming a nomad is or changing their name or, you know, quitting their job and following their passion or taking a leap of faith, whatever your version of that is, because everybody has a version of that, um, to find that edge and to kind of push it, to play with it and see what, what you can discover about yourself from it. You may find that, and you probably will find that, um, if you cross it enough times, then it won't, it will be less and less scary for the future times. Hmm. And that's really the whole, I mean, every one of these 108 doses in this book is basically a different version of that, that premise. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful observation that, uh, in some ways your nomadism is a, um, it's an analogy for playing with the edge of discomfort, that dance. And I suppose this is where having a meditation practice has tremendous utility because it does provide sort of a consistency that one can, um, can come back to, Mm -hmm. uh, and then venture out again. Um, so, and in my life, certainly my relationship with Skylar, which feels like a meditation practice, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, you know, it's three, three plus decades is, has been, um, really liberating for me because I always have that sort of safety zone in a way, uh, from which to, that serves as a springboard for a lot of risk taking, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. in my professional life. So I'd love to jump into some of the selections in the book, but, um, and just to be clear, this book, I, I have it here. I have the galley version, um, for those of you who are not seeing this and just listening to it, you'll just have to imagine this glorious book um it's called knowing where to look and um it is filled with gems of wisdom 108 daily doses of of inspiration and i wonder if you could just take a minute to describe uh the evolution of its creation um and and how it can be experienced as a as a work and then we can jump into some specific selections which i'm excited to hear you read so back in April, May of 2016, almost, well, actually five years ago this month, I had been playing with the idea of writing a daily email. I had been following uh, Seth Godin, the hmm. marketer, for hmm. a long time, and uh, his daily email. And there's another guy, uh, whose email I'd been subscribed to in the meditation community. And I always thought, you know, gosh, that is so cool, but that would be so challenging to have to write a daily email and send it out on time every day, you know, especially with all the like traveling and stuff I was doing. So I kept talking myself out of it. And then around this time of year, I decided to get serious about it. I decided enough was enough. And I don't know if you could call that inspiration um, to finally take the leap, but I decided that I was going to finally take the leap and that June the 6th, I would send out my first one. And I didn't have a name for it. I didn't really know if I would be able to do it. I felt like I was going to run out of stories and content after about a few weeks. 
And so June 6th, I sent out the first one. It was called Make Tea, Not War. And it was about the origin of tea. And I thought, okay, that was painless enough. I sent it out to, I don't know, 19 people or something like that. And then sent out another one the next day. And I told people this is going to be a daily thing and more people signed up and whatnot. And then after about three weeks, I ran out of stories, just like I predicted. (laughs) But something really interesting happened. I discovered that showing up that many days in a row somehow caused this these ideas to come through me that I did not pre-plan and and I would I would like sort of capture them and just jot them down as quickly as possible and then those would be the ones I would send out and literally they they wouldn't come until the, the I had to send hit the send button in 10 minutes and it just come and I started trusting it more and more. And so long story short, five years later, um, I have thousands of these, these daily doses of inspiration that I've sent out a year ago. I was talking to my agent and I said, you know, I've got these wonderful emails. My list has grown to thousands of people. Now I get all these replies, light, you've changed my life. Like you've, you know, I can't, this is exactly what I need to hear, blah, blah, blah. And the other side of the spectrum too, you know, I'm, I can't believe you wrote that. I'm offended, blah, blah, blah. So I know that it's, that's, it's affecting people in all ways. And, uh, and I, you know, the only people who are seeing these emails are people who are on my list because they're not archived anywhere online. Uh, Cause that's, I didn't want them to be, I wanted them to be something special that well, you had to be signed up for to, to receive. And, uh, but I decided to, to, um, put them together in a book proposal as we do and see, see what, what the publishers thought about this body of work. And, uh, so I gathered up the greatest hits and plus some new ones. And, um, and I wanted to originally do like a, a postcard type of book. I wanted to create these beautiful illustrations and designs that go along with each one that people could take take out if the pages were maybe perforated and then they could put them on their refrigerator they could send them to their friends because we're already people were sharing them with all their friends and family and i wanted to continue that tradition of sharing and so it became the book proposal for knowing where to look and sounds true um ended up agreeing to bring it to the world and so now we have this beautiful little book um published by sounds true the only thing that is not a part of the original vision is that they're not perforated but they are all designed to be standalone pieces so i mean you could theoretically if you're very creative you could like just cut cut out a page and you could put it up on your refrigerator if you felt inspired to do so but yeah the whole idea is to inspire inspiration Um, wherever someone is. And, and I, I've said before, it's not a book of solutions. This is not going to give you the answers. It'll help you to, it'll just give you a little nudge or a poke and help you to look for the answers within your own heart or within your own life. And that's really the only place you can find the answers anyway. And mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Perhaps you could upsell a, an exacto knife with it. <laughs> yeah, a knowing where to look exacto knife. knife. Just in case you're looking to brand any other <laughs> merchandise, uh, 
that could be useful. No, but yeah, just yeah. It, it is um it's a extremely enjoyable experience to read it because one can almost serendipitously just open it up to any page and be mm. immediately taken in and then find themselves uh, examining the nature of a thought or an emotion or a concept um, or one's own mind and one's judgment to mm. what you've written, <laughs> which is often <laughs> where, where my mind seems to migrate as I try to try to observe my own judgments. So, yeah, it's it's just a it's just a lovely experience. I've been I had the fortune to to be inside of it the last couple of nights before going to bed, and just found myself uh, just in preparation for this podcast with a, di- the, a certain difficulty in choosing which ones to to talk about. There's so many so many ones that merit discussion. So um, so congratulations for for bringing this into reality. It's yeah, a great, man, it's a great you. gift. And that's, that's part of the deal is it's, you're encouraged to just, it's not a book that's written from, for, to be read from cover to cover. It's actually, you're encouraged to pick it up, whether you're in bed or on the toilet or, you know, you're just trying to just want to about to meditate and you just want a little positive thought to consider at the beginning or at the end and uh, just a little, yeah. So you know, if you only read one page, every story is like one, maybe two pages at the most, then that could be enough for the day or for the week. And then maybe you pick it up again the next week. So, yeah, I can already imagine. I just installed a sauna here in, mm. at my home where I actually do a lot of my meditating because it's, um, it's enclosed and quiet. And as you know, I have three rug rats and an otherwise. <laughs> Uh, a life that could otherwise be quite distracted. So, mm-hmm. and I actually like the heat because it it sort of brings me into a moment, um, and I, I have a easier time sort of shedding distraction. So I, I could imagine this this volume getting soaked with essential oils and, and sweat <laughs> and and water, and, and you know I might have to request another one sometime soon. Um, but uh, I think. You know, if if you don't mind reading some selections from it, yeah, I think it, it would be a great uh, joy for people. And I thought just because, um, you know, Wiggle Room, which is near the beginning, I think on page yes. 22, yes. Um, was a good place to start just because your path as a meditation teacher was not an obvious one. Mm. Uh, and I think this one sort of pokes at that a little bit. So mm-hmm. uh, whenever you're Let's do it. ready. Yeah. Okay. Wiggle room. A funny thing happened to me one unusually cold February night in Los Angeles back in 2003. I was invited by a friend to a talk on meditation that was given by his meditation teacher who was visiting from out of town. I decided to go not because I had any interest in learning meditation, but as a favor to my friend. Now, if you would have asked me before I walked into the room about my life's purpose, there's a 100% chance that my answer wouldn't have had anything to do with meditation. However, if you asked me the same question after I left that room two hours later, I would have declared that I was destined to become a meditation teacher. That is the funny and beautiful thing about inspiration. There's just no way 
that we can plan for. We may have loose ideas about what we're here to do, and maybe our lifetime and maybe our life is unfolding according to that plan, but there's a decent chance it won't unfold to that according to that plan. And the scariest thing about a diversion is not having all the answers. Even mm. after I knew that becoming a meditation teacher was my calling, there was no vision showing me it was how it was going to unfold. Remember, this was in 2003. So no one was talking about making a career in meditation at the time. I kept my day job while continuing to apprentice my teacher until one day, about four years after we met, he invited me and a few others to India to train us to become meditation teachers. And the rest is history. I've learned that this kind of life-altering inspiration can strike at any time, maybe even today. If we have the courage to explore them, our internal hunches have a way of working out for the best. If we ignore them, we may not be able to sleep at night. Either way, I recommend leaving a little wiggle room in the long-term plan just in case. Mm. Thank you, man. That's, uh, I love this um, because it just speaks to s so many things that are true about life. It, it speaks to intuition and the utility of it. And, and also, you know, where you intuition can be risky and lead us astray, but, but, um, but it, it seems mostly to probe this, this idea of being able to live in some degree of uncertainty, right? In mm. some, with some degree of space. And you, you, somewhere later in the book, you, um, you, you quote Joseph Campbell, and I just wrote it down. I'll just read it really quickly because I think it, it sort of tied in in some tangential fashion to what you just read. He wrote, uh, if you can see your path laid out in front of you step by step, you know it's not your path. Mm -hmm. Your own path you make with every step you take. That's why it's your path. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, when I read that later in the book, I immediately sort of connected it to this writing, um, which is, of course, sort of me Trent, imposing my own experience on, on your work. But uh, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the importance of wiggle room or, or space. Well, man, it's almost, it's like define my life, wiggle room. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people who's had, I've had several careers. I think I'm on my fifth career right now in my 40s and in each one has been fulfilling on some level and um so i'm always impressed when people have a very clear mission and they kind of stick on that mission over an extended period of time but i feel like it's even more important when you're in that kind of trajectory to maybe it's not a career thing, but maybe it's a lifestyle thing to have a little wiggle room in your lifestyle. Because I feel like that's a way that, that the universe, if you want to call it that kind of keeps us relevant and that our purpose, our ultimate purpose is actually kind of multifold and it has seasons. And so in one season, your purpose may be to be a doctor, lawyer, or, you know, a meditation teacher. 
And then in the next season, which may be a few months from that point or a few years from that point, it may be to do something else or to show up in a different kind of way. And um, one of the reasons why we suffer from so much stress and anxiety is not necessarily external. A lot of it is generated internally because we resist the sort of inner callings to show up differently, to try different things, to take those leaps of faith, to follow our heart. And, and the interesting thing about it is that on paper, it, everything can look great, right? And everyone could see you in your life and think you've got it made and everything is, you know, you have no problems. But if you're not adhering to that guidance inside, it usually doesn't feel that great. And that creates even more tension and shame because now I'm embarrassed and because I shouldn't be feeling this way. You know, all these things. And I just think like mental health, we have to talk about them a little bit more openly yes. as a society. And maybe maybe this work will be a catalyst for some people to start the conversation and, uh, you know, just talk about it. Because I bet you if you talked about it with three or four people, everybody would have some version of that. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking of, you know, I've been a dentist for 18 years and I've been thinking, you know, um, of becoming a Cirque du Soleil performer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you laugh at that, but my grandfather was an acclaimed cardiologist into his mid-50s. Mm -hmm. And in, I think it's 57 or 58 years old, he decided to make an almost spontaneous decision to become a gypsy violinist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was absolutely fulfilled and happy to the day he died. <laughs> Um, you know, of course, it wasn't necessarily the the most astute financial move, um, no. but it didn't it didn't matter. It was a paycheck um, for his soul. That's right. You know, Russell Brand it turned me on to this one definition of envy, and, and envy is um, is certainly something that can fester if you're not living your life's purpose. And, and I'll, I'll butcher it a tiny bit, but hopefully I get the essence, which is envy is the projection of your, uh, of your unfulfilled potential onto someone else. Mm. And I'm like, well, I remember the first time I heard him say that and it just kind of hit me um, is that, you know, we hold ourselves back from our dreams um, often because of fear, right? Fear of, of judgment or fear of failure. In some cases, to be honest, fear of success. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, so then we go back to this sort of default position of, you know, certainty. Mm. And, and you're absolutely right on where if you were to do any survey, rigorous or not, of, of people, you know, there is these, there are these kind of like, hidden desires of like, no, I really want to do that. Uh, and, and there's a lot of things that, that hold people back, but thankfully you weren't held back from being, being a meditation teacher. I love that you bundled it with lawyer and doctor too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Hello, it's Jeff, British Jeff. And you'll see why that's appropriate just in a moment. I want to express my deep, gratitude to Pucker Herbal Teas who help supporting this podcast through the generous sponsorship. Now if you're a tea drinker like me who appreciates refined 
blends in high quality herbs. I couldn't recommend pucker teas any more than I'm recommending them right here. They taste great. They are ethically sourced and they're made with the highest quality organic herbs. They're even blended by herbalists. They also have a broad variety to choose from depending on what you need throughout the day. Wake up with supreme matcha green. That's what I'm doing right now because I quit coffee. Cool your body with three mint or relax with chamomile, vanilla and manuka honey just to name a few. Now Pucker was founded by an herbalist who was inspired by the wisdom of Ayurveda, traditional Indian medicine and the power that plants can bring into our lives. You can find Pucker where teas are so near you. So grab a cup and enjoy the power of nature. There's another piece in the book called Dreams Deferred. Um, mm. And it was about this guy who started this uh, nonprofit for late stage cancer patients, people who are terminally ill and uh, he decided that, you know, before these people pass on, I want to give them the, the dreams that have been deferred for their whole life. So he helped somebody, you know, start a painting class and he helped somebody else ride horses and somebody else was good, taking guitar lessons. And what he found was that a good percentage of them went into remission. Once they started doing the thing that they always dreamt of doing, their cancer went away, which is... Wow. Uh, epic, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I interviewed Anita Murjani uh, of maybe two months ago. I don't know if you know her story. No. But she was uh, a woman that had a near-death experience that was riddled with cancer hmm. um, and had uh, went to the other side and then had a miraculous recovery, um, one that doctors kind of typical Western allopathic doctors couldn't really explain. Um, and then she st started telling her story. Um, and of course, Wayne Dyer, who seems to be a theme in this episode, um, discovered her. And then she became an author and a public speaker and all of a sudden started living this absolutely full, inspired life. So wow. it's, um, you know, this mind-body connection is, is something that we're still understanding. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if we could do another piece, if you don't mind yeah, reading. Yeah, do as many as you want, man. You know, cool. so let's just, you just, let's... You just give me the page number and I'll, I'll. Okay. Well, this is on page 62 mm -hmm. and it's uh, titled autocorrect, which Auto gave me, correct. this made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so just, uh, uh, caveat is that a lot of these words in the piece itself are misspelled. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> little squiggly lines underneath them, just like you would see if you were typing out an email and you misspelled a word. Yeah. Okay. So autocorrect. When we write, if we get it wrong because we were preoccupied or tired, our device gives us the benefit of the doubt. The device knows that based on our past behavior, we probably didn't mean to type banana as B-A-N-N-A-N-A, -N -N -A -N -A, so it will suggest banana. The reason it's difficult to communicate via speech is because there's no delete function, no autocorrect, and very little benefit of the doubt, unless one is mature enough to understand that the nature of speech is first draft, and that tired or preoccupied people 
don't always communicate effectively. And just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that anyone accept verbal abuse or gaslighting, but everyone slips up and says something they don't mean from time to time. So be willing to at least ask if that's what they meant to say. And if it wasn't, then forgiveness is nature's autocorrect. Mm. That last line, it's just a mic drop. <laughs> and, and there's another one in there, which is the nature of speech is first draft. Yes. I wrote that down until I got it right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, this is, I think, one that's particularly timely. Mm. Um because there does not seem to be a tremendous amount of grace that we have for each other right now no. around uh, public discourse. Um, and, you know, one can only kind of turn their head to see endless vitriol being, you know, spewed back and forth, um, you know, whether it's politics or almost any issue at this juncture, <laughs> COVID, um, et cetera. And, yeah, I think the point that you make here is so prescient because, you know, we are highly imperfect people. Um, and, you know, there is a, a good chance um, that over the course of just this conversation, I will make about 100 grammatical errors <laughs> and probably some other errors that, that I, I, I might regret. But, you know, and it's also to say that words do matter. Like we need to be mindful about our verbiage. Uh, but I think that we can also become so inhibited to speak in the worry that a term may have expired or a tweet won't age well. Um, and then in that inhibition, silence becomes complicity. You know, so, and, and you know, if we're unable to have these dynamic conversations, it, it seems um, that it's going to be very difficult to move society forward. So um, I, I was really just struck by this one in particular because I've had a number of experiences over the last five years where, you know, to be honest, like I fucked up. You know, I've said a few things where I just stepped in a bucket of shit. <laughs> and to be honest, I had the great fortune of people calling me forward instead of calling me out. Like holding me accountable, I'll just give you one tiny example. I think four or five years ago, I was saying something where the intention was very positive about, you know, equality and justice. And I was trying to be very inclusive in including a lot of different groups into that conversation. And I said, uh, I think the people of myriad sexual preference. And, you know, I, I just made a mistake, you know, basically. And there was a, a guy on social media that called me out and said, you know, very politely, but very directly, like, no, the, you know, the terminology is sexual orientation. Um, and he just called me forward there. And I, uh, um, and I never made that mistake again. <laughs> um, and obviously it was very, it was a, it was a good natured mistake. Um, but it was just an example of, I think, thing you know, stuff that happens the, all the time. Um, anyways, I, I don't know if there was any particular 
uh, source inspiration for, for writing this one, but it's I certainly mean, I'm in the same boat, yeah. man. You know, when you send out a daily something written every day, you know, people are going to, like I said, I get the whole spectrum. I get people saying they were deeply offended by what I wrote. Cause I didn't include some, some exception that they apply to, or, uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum to save my life, uh, thank God you sent it right when you did <laughs> literally <laughs> on the same day with the same piece. Yeah. And, uh, and I get it, you know, there's definitely a lot of considerations that we have to make today and we should do our best to make those considerations at the same time. We're not going to be able to catch every single one. We're going to make mistakes and that's how we learn. That's how we learn. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think one of the hallmarks of someone who is, who is, uh, on the, the, the front end of this learning is you're putting yourself out there on a regular basis, right? Yeah. You're talking about these things and, um, and you're, you, you, you know this, but with all the writing you've been doing, I mean, you're so prolific right now with your writing, but you know, you learn how from, from the act itself, you learn how to self edit, you learn how to screen, you, you, you read, you write a piece, you just probably, I know this is the process I follow is I just write it the way that it's coming out. And then I take it back and through like five or 10 different filters, right? So what is someone who's been abused going to, how are they, how would they interpret this piece? What if someone lost a child? How would they interpret this piece? What if someone has been sex trafficked, right? You take it through all these different screens. And by the time you, you finish doing that, you've probably had to water it down a little bit. And, um, but that's the cost of, of helping people feel seen and heard, right? You can't just be out there, you know, letting your ego basically run the show because it sounds great um, if you are concerned about learning. And, um, but at the same time, you don't want to Mickey Mouse it too much because you still want it to have your voice and that original inspiration that came through. So it's a, it's a delicate balance or dance, as you called it that you learn how to, how to do. And, uh, and I think that is the art of ex express expression, expressing yourself publicly that people who have never done that will never quite understand. And some people are just never going to be satisfied. They're always going to look for a reason to be offended about something. And that's just a part of it yeah. too. You know, you can't please everybody. So you just, you just take the knocks and you learn and, and you keep, uh, you just keep moving forward. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I discovered inadvertently about writing, um, and this could take other iterations, you know, you can be making videos as you have done prolifically on, on Instagram, et cetera, but that putting yourself out there is a form of personal development in mm. and of itself <laughs> <laughs> for the very reasons that, that you're, um, articulating, you know, I will also get feedback, some of which is sort of nice and adulating the ego which of course is is lovely but um but also you know when you write as much as you do or make as many videos as you do or, or write as much as i do you know there are bound to be people as you say that are going to find issue with something and um and of course the first reaction if you're not in a in a centered place is to be defensive right and you're like, well, that's not what I meant. And, you know, like you start to wind up all of these defense mechanisms. 
but I've really actually gotten to the place where I look forward <laughs> to the people that take issue with something because for me that is a learning opportunity, right? It's like there was a woman last summer that called me out so hard on the use of the term founding fathers. And I was just using it, I mean, to be honest, pretty naively in the context of something that I was trying to say about the hypocrisy inside our constitution and blah, 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 et cetera. And she just laid in to me about sort of the patriarchal and paternalistic nature of founding fathers. And, you know, at first I was like, wait, I'm just trying to say something here about justice and equality, you know, like, um, but after I really heard it, you know, I, ex I actually came around to just expiring that term in my own vocabulary. And it was like, okay. You know, like there's an opportunity here to learn. <laughs> Anyways, um, it's uh, it's interesting. I think actually this segues almost, uh, you know, seamlessly into this next one. I would love you to read about um, on page 120 about um, about Prince uh, mm. because mm. Uh, a musical idol for me, and this is a story that I just had. Had never heard of. Mm. Um, let's see. This one is called Use the Booze. Use the Booze. Mm. I read that in 1981, three years before the release of Purple Rain, Prince was, quote, chased off stage during an opening performance for the Rolling Stones in Los Angeles. He was just three songs into his set when dissatisfied audience members began hurling Coke cups and hot dog trays at him. This happened in front of 92,000 people. Now, put yourself in Prince's uh, boots. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> the humiliation and embarrassment you would feel if you were following your passion, putting yourself out there. And 90,000 people started loudly booing and throwing their trash at you in front of your idols. <laughs> <laughs> and Prince is far from the only one. Many other famous musicians have been booed off stage as well, including Lauryn Hill, Kanye West, Drake, Rihanna, and even Beyonce. This shows that living in our purpose doesn't make us immune to haters, critics, or even public humiliation. If anything, it's a rite of passage. And like Prince and so many others have done, we must use the booze as fuel for getting better, for continuing to show up, and for believing that no matter how misunderstood we may be now, the tide can always turn and often does so long as we keep going back on stage. Mm. And then so there's, good, a, there's a little addendum here. It says Prince's very public yeah. rejection also reminds me of something Andy Warhol once said, which is don't think about making art, just get it done. Let everyone else decide if it's good or bad, whether they love it or hate it. And while they are deciding, make even more art. The most successful people tend to review rejection as a teacher 
So from today on, make a practice of writing down five things that you can learn from each rejection. And if you can't think of any tangible lessons, then list five ways you can improve the next time. Hmm. Yeah, these are so good. Um, both use the booze and the the uh, the additional consideration. And that's such a great lesson. I mean, you know, I think we addressed some of it, but you know, really trying to eschew the ego, right? I mean, the fear of judgment. And I mean, to be honest, I was, uh, and we've talked about this on, on your podcast, um, is that I was a people pleaser mm. for a significant chunk of my life. And mm-hmm. that is my, my, you know, when I'm feeling a little tired and, and not my best self, that's kind of my default is, is I'm a chameleon you know, from a personality perspective, often with the goal of kind of fitting in. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so often we can scaffold our own identity in the millwork of other people Um, and and then sort of thrust the requirements of our ego onto them Mm -hmm. such that like our self-worth is based on what they think, you know? (laughs) So, um and a lot of this, I, I think, uh, you know, comes back to this really deep desire that we have for connection. Uh, but th- there's a confusion that we have between sort of fitting in and belonging. And, you know, Brene Brown has this beautiful delineation between the two of them as, you know, belonging is really being part of a group or being accepted without sacrificing your authentic self mm. versus fitting in, which is changing who you are. Mm. in order to have that acceptance. And, uh, and that always rang true. I mean, it honestly took me 47 years <laughs> to, to acknowledge that, that distinction. Uh, but, you know, but when you put it in the context of even the greats, like Prince, you know, had to deal with it, I think that that makes it easier for us uh, lay people. <laughs> and if you even just envision it, like what, what is Prince wearing at the time? He's got high heel boots on. He's probably got no shirt on. He's got eye, he's got <laughs> makeup on, you know, his hair is like done up in this really interesting way. And he's got a kimono on. So right off the bat, you know, you have to kind of work up the courage to even walk out on stage looking like that. And yeah. then, and then you get hit with all this, this rejection. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a testament to to people like that who continually put themselves out there and and you know if we contrast whatever we're dealing with with stuff like that it makes it, it seem a little bit more doable a little bit more manageable because i don't think anybody listening to this is probably dressed anywhere near what prince was dressed like uh, while they're yeah, going I, to their job or you yeah. know living their purpose or whatever well, the, the psychographic of the commune audience might surprise you, but I, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I just got canceled. I just canceled myself. No, I, I don't think that's or assuming possible. That people I, were more conformists think, than they actually are. Uh, I think you've scaffolded yourself in a, in enough wisdom to protect yourself <laughs> from that. Um, yeah, I remember watching Beyonce really early on in her career, and they had. Um, uh, a gig destiny's child right mm-hmm. um they had a gig like a halftime gig at an nba game mm-hmm. and not the highest level gig for her um at, at least like a milwaukee so bucks game or something yeah and, and somehow you know the camera person captured 
some kind of unflattering a- angle, if that's possible, just for a moment. And I just remember being like, uh, man, her career is over. <laughs> um, but uh, of course, I've, I've never been good at predicting that sort of thing. As I, I remember when, you know, hip hop first hit, hit the scene, I was like, nah, it's not, not going to catch on. So, um, but, you know, but man, Beyonce is, uh, and all of those folks are uh, a portrait of persistence. Mm. Um, but we, but you don't have to be, you know, famous to, to persist, right? Um, you can just be, you know, working in your own little world. So, mm-hmm. um, cool. Let's, uh, uh, if you've got another one or two in you, yeah, man, um, let's do it. I would love to, um, hear you as i think it's page 90 which is a sort of a horizontal format in the book Ooh, um, 90 27 years this 27 is actually years. if i had you were asking me earlier what my favorites were this is actually one of my one of my personal favorites so okay, okay. this one is called 27 years it's about nelson mandela nelson mandela spent 27 years in prison confined to a small cell without a bed or plumbing He was forced to do hard labor in a quarry. He could write and receive a letter once every six months. And once a year, he was allowed to meet with a visitor for only 30 minutes. After Mandela's release, he famously said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Now, the misconception of this story is that people think that Mandela suddenly became forgiving on the day he was released, but he's human. And I imagine that he wrestled with his ability to forgive his captors long before his release, especially when there was no hope of being released. When we find ourselves moving through trying moments, and particularly if a situation appears hopeless, That's when our practice of love, forgiveness, and compassion can have the most impact on our inner growth. And that's why we must continually redirect our attention onto the higher lessons being learned, not the means by which they are being learned. We should assume that if we're stuck in something dreadful and we can't get out, then we're learning something that will help us mine our own greatness, something we will perhaps one day use to help and inspire others. From a spiritual perspective, I would offer that it took Mandela 27 years to learn how to be completely and unconditionally forgiving. And once he fully embodied it, he was released from prison. Hmm. And that was a large part of what made him the great man whose words and principles we love to quote and emulate today. Mm, beautiful man mm. yeah <laughs> um yeah i as a boy i traveled to south africa in 1988 um mostly i was working at this little career center in soweto of course mm-hmm. i was living in johannesburg so i would do the opposite commute of <laughs> pretty much everybody else um and then got to go to cape town towards the end of that stay and this was still during apartheid, so Mandela was was in jail 
mm. on on Robbins Island. Um, and I can't remember. It might have been from Table Mountain. I can't remember. But from uh, some altitude, you could actually look out and see the prison. Mm. And I remember my dad was with me, and we looked out and uh, just saw where, where Mandela had spent all those years. And it was, yeah, it was very moving, um, very moving experience. And I've always considered him to be just uh, the pinnacle of, of forbearance and, and morality. And in this case, you know, forgiveness. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about forgiveness and how you, how you understand it, and, you know, how Mandela might've understood it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I subscribe to, um, the understanding of the spiritual leaders like like Wayne Dyer, um, who talks about forgiveness as a cage, and I think Michael Beckwith also echoes that sentiment. But in forgiving someone, you're not you're not letting them off the hook. You're letting yourself off the hook, and uh, and that's just really as simple as that. And then I think there's a I don't think this piece made the book, but there's another piece that I composed once about how the next level to that is forgetfulness, you know, to, to take it to a point where you don't even remember what the person did. Cause you hear, I forgive them, but I'll never forget, <laughs> which means you really haven't forgiven them. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You're just not going to talk to them about it anymore. <laughs> but true forgiveness is forgetfulness. And, uh, and if we can evolve to the point, to that point, then we'll be truly, truly free to, um, to move on. And, and in moving on, we may even find that we have more compassion for ourselves as well as for others who, who may do similar things. Um, because that's usually what happens is we hold on until we end up accidentally doing the thing that someone did to us in some way. Mm-hmm. I have, a, I have a relative who um, had been cheated on uh, pretty much her entire marriage. And obviously that's a very, you know, challenging situation for anybody to be in. Uh, and then eventually they got divorced and, you know, she was really uh, sad about the divorce situation. And it was eye-opening because it made me realize how even in the face of something like that, there's a tendency to hold on to it, even though it's causing you pain. In any case, years later, she ended up falling in love um, with a man who was married. (laughs) And his circumstances were such that his wife was more or less ill and incapacitated for most of it, but technically he was married and she was the other woman and, you know, and, and it was almost like the, uh, mirror, the mirror opposite of what she had been experiencing. And, um, and so once she started going through that experience, she had a lot more compassion for people who go through that experience. And I think that's kind of what life does is it gives us both sides of the equation. And that's usually the point when people are able to fully embody that, that air of forgiveness. But if we can kind of front load the forgiveness, we may find that we can be more available to whatever opportunities are present uh, with us in the moment, instead of having to wait until the shoe is on the other foot before we can finally see, Oh yeah. Okay. I, I get how that, how people can be human. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I guess I'm just finally going to move on with my life. 
Yeah. That, um, yeah, compassion is uh, unveiled there, but, um, but you're right, you know, people can spend a, can limp through a good chunk of their life, um, holding kind of an ember of anger and vengeance, plotting, you know, ridiculous (laughs) kinds of revenge theories and, and all that time they're the ones getting burned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you're the ones you're the one holding the ember, and yeah. the person that betrayed you is off at a Yankees game or a Lakers game. <laughs> and half the time they're... doesn't even know the, he betrayed anybody. You know, it's like, right. oh, I, you're upset. Yeah. What? I didn't even realize I did anything wrong. Yeah, I think you know. There's this um, notion that you know forgiveness forsakes accountability, yeah. um, and I think it's really a challenge to get through that. But, um, but I think, you know, you can still hold people accountable for their actions while forgiving them, because as you said, it is a gift that you give yourself as much as it is a gift that you give someone else. Um, just, uh, because you can live in that kind of amygdala hijack, um, Mm. for a lot of your life. And, maybe, uh, maybe the ultimate accountability is to ourselves to be to be available to be present and mm. you know to do whatever we have to do to, to to keep our lives free of of that that constrictive sort of you know suffering that can come about as a result of holding uh, yeah. harboring those feelings yeah there's a, there's a small distinction you made here um, that struck me specifically, and I can relate it to my own lived experience, but you said, and once he fully embodied it, mm. speaking of forgiveness, once he fully embodied it, he was released from prison. And there is a subtle distinction between the ability to intellectually forgive and, and really somatically forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can relate that to my own experience where, you know, there have been periods or events in my life where I've felt betrayed and, uh, and I can apply some of this sort of intellectual wisdom to it, but my body is still, you know, holding on to that vengeance or that anger. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a whole nother experience that happens when your body just lets go of it. Yeah, and, I think uh, that's the forgetfulness part. Like that comes mm. that that somatic experience comes with that because that means your body is not holding it. Because sometimes that's you're right. Your body can hold on to it, even though your intent may be to move on. But your body still keeps reminding you of what what happened. Which is again where practices like meditation and journaling and for gratitude come come in really handy because that can help you release that stuff from your body. Yeah, and there can be a sequence to it. It can happen intellectually first, and in some ways it might have to, mm-hmm. um, to then spur on. Put yourself in s- proximity for your body to release it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, since you brought up gratitude, um, <laughs> perhaps you, you know, this could be a, a, a good one to, to start our descent on. Um, <laughs> And which is page five, right? Yeah, it's 85. This is a great one. Okay. The gratitude conversation. And and the text design is really interesting on this one because it starts off blurry and then it gets clear 
as it goes down to the bottom of the text. Oh, I thought that was just my eyes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Telling a loved one who worries a lot to stop worrying is like telling them to stop being hungry. It doesn't work like that. And it may cause them to worry even more. If you genuinely want to help someone calm down, when the time is right, try asking them this question. What are you grateful for in this moment? And if they don't have an answer, say, well, I'm grateful for this about you and tell them something specific that you genuinely appreciate about them. Worrying comes from a fear of the future, whereas gratitude leads us back to the present moment. So in a way, this type of gratitude conversation can be a solution for connection and for helping someone to calm their nerves without ever having to tell them to calm down. Hmm. This is like spiritual trickery, <laughs> but it's yeah. very effective. Uh, I'm teasing. Um, yeah, this actually brought something into relief for me that hadn't been clear um, prior to reading it. Um, and, and I suppose it seems obvious now, but certainly I, I can um, uh can witness worry as a projection into the future mm. of, of, you know, oftentimes we fixate on past events right? and we project them into the future to create what I've started to term as um, negative anticipated memories. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so this, that, this piece has always been clear to me, but gratitude as a practice of presence um, has not been as clear. Mm. And so th- for me, this was uh, instructive there um, where, you know, if I am preoccupied with the future, um, you know, what is it in this moment that infuses my life with enoughness or, or contentment? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, a, I think, a very useful question to bring oneself back to that place um, right here. Because so much of worry is just, you know, fantasies of our own projection, right? Yeah, man. And um, I, I think gratitude is great anytime. It's, it's, it's always on time when we do it, but especially if we're, because worrying, you're right, yanks you right out of the present moment and puts you somewhere in the past or somewhere in the future, which is not usually helpful for whatever we ultimately want to create for ourselves, right? Which is obviously some semblance of safety or adventure or mystery or any of those kinds of things. And, um, and this is actually something that was inspired by a Wayne Dyer uh, anecdote that I heard him say once. He said, he said, look, if you're ever angry with your partner or with anyone really, and you have to have a discussion, the way you keep the discussion on the rails and you keep it, you keep it, um, above board is you hold hands with the person. He says it's very difficult to stay angry with someone while you're talking to them if you're holding their hand. And it's so true in my experience. So I wow. think I think gratitude yeah. is maybe another another side of that where it's hard to stay angry if you're grateful at the same time. 
Yeah. Yeah, I started to have kind of propel different thoughts around gratitude. And, you know, I've always had a, a slightly eye roll relationship with it with it um because you know you see a lot of memes around gratitude mm-hmm. and they tend to be sanctimonious and, and 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 sometimes just gratuitous in nature so i started thinking about gratitude as the works and actions in which you engage that recognize the miracle of life's gifts mm. um which is a little bit of um you know, it's a little bit living in the future. It's not necessarily grounded in the moment, mm-hmm. but uh, but I felt that you know my life, as I reflect on it, is so blessed in so many ways. Just and it just by mere luck, you know, just being born in this body to parents who more or less loved me and you know took care of me and gave me a good education. And you know, I don't. I have my you know, basic needs met. So, you know, is gratitude enough just to recognize that? Or is gratitude really recognizing that through good work and good speech and good action and, you know, the eightfold path? So, yeah, I think, um, I don't think any of these, these interventions are going to be enough necessarily. I think they have a cumulative effect or a compound effect so gratitude is important. Obviously, meditation is important. Exercise is important. Surrounding yourself with loving people is important. Being inspired, having your purpose, all those things are important. Um, but what 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 I think this piece really applies to is an emergency situation. So if you're in yeah. an emergency <laughs> worry situation and you're looking for a way to get someone to calm their nerves a bit. Um, there's one way that definitely does not work and that is telling someone to calm down (laughs) (laughs) and that tends to be the go-to for people who don't have enough patience or space or awareness um you know because and understandably so because maybe some of these situations you've been dealing with this kind of reaction from someone for a very long time and maybe you're also in the throes of some change that you're trying to adapt to and so you can't really rely on having the patience of Job or the awareness of Mother Teresa or somebody in this situation, but you just want to make it better. And I think ultimately that's what our intention is. Even regardless of what we feel about somebody, we just want to make it better, at least temporarily. And and this is just one little tiny, you know, way to make a situation maybe better for a few minutes until we can create enough more space to figure out what, okay, maybe we need to go take a walk or we need to go take a bath or, you know, do something in addition to that. And, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of the goal of this book is just, you know, they're just doses of inspiration. There's not, these are not the, this is not going to be the surgery, inspiration surgery that's going to fix your life, but you'll, the, the dose will hopefully keep you on your path long enough to be able to, um, see some patterns and connect some dots in hindsight and make different, ultimately make different choices. Cause that's what it comes down to is we just have to make different choices. Yeah. Yeah. And we referenced it <clears throat> briefly before, but one thing that I've learned acutely about writing is that 
you know, you are creating from the subjective experience of what it is like to be you, mm. but people are also experiencing what you've written through their own subjective experience. Mm -hmm. So they're bringing their lived experience, everything that they're thinking about, their situations, everything they're reading to this book, you know, mm -hmm. um, that you've written. And so while this may propose a series of core recipes, uh, people will be bringing their own unique spice to, to that. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and I think that that's what makes putting a book out beautiful, to be honest, is that there is no one book. There is a different book for everyone that picks it up and reads it because of, of the experience that they, they bring to it. Um, yeah, and this Malcolm is why, Gladwell yeah. talks about that. He's in his master class. I don't know if you've seen his master class before, but he says that once your book is out in the world, it's no longer your book. It's, it's everyone else's book. Whoever's reading it is their book and it's their story and it's their interpretation and and so you have no longer, no more authorship over that. Yeah. And uh, I suppose to close with Wayne, just because he seemed, again, to be recurrent here, is, you know, you mentioned um, kind of running out of things to say. Mm. Uh, and, and I've certainly, that's been an experience that, um, you know, I've hit head on recently after writing some 100,000 words or something in 2020. Uh, it's like, you know, what else do I possibly have to say about anything and who would want to possibly hear it at this juncture? Um, but there is something that Wayne referred to when, when he wrote a number of his books as, as him not being the author of them, but it's him as writing. And it took me a long time to understand that notion of as writing, mm -hmm. um, that uh, that you can become sort of the conduit or the vehicle for thoughts that are appearing and disappearing in sort of a mystic mystical consciousness, and so thank God that you've been able to to tap into that. That's been beautiful because I no longer have that fear. You know, now I understand the game, which is about showing up, mm. whatever it is. Right? I'm sure your tennis play is uh <laughs> is you know you're you're able to drop into the flow a lot more because you've shown up over the years so many times than if you were just a weekend warrior who's doing it every blue moon and i think that applies to pretty much pretty much everything so um so I, i'm for i feel very blessed to have uh put in the, that time because you you can't even really translate the feeling that you have without without investing the level of time and energy into it yeah and you just you may have just foreshadowed our our next podcast about middle-aged guys who try to be athletes um, <laughs> I, I i know that you write about uh running up this mm -hmm. mythical hill <laughs> a number of times in the book mm -hmm. but i guess i i'd finish with one question for you and i'm not mm -hmm. sure there's an answer so it's it's I suppose kind of a trap door in there but, um, you know, w wisdom is often referred to as taking your own advice. Mm -hmm. um, and there is so much wisdom here. And it really is uh, a reflection, I don't think, just of what you've been able to challenge, but also, or challenge, uh, channel, but, uh, but also what you've been able to forage um, through all of your experiences. 
And, and I wonder how much you take your own advice and how difficult that is. Yeah, you know, there's a piece in here called The Discipline Illusion. And um, it talks about, it's a, it started by a conversation I had with a friend of mine who was, was communicating how impressed she was by how ev- apparently disciplined I am because I write every day and I meditate and I don't drink and I don't eat a lot of sugar and, you know, all these things. And, um, and I told her the whole thing was, it's all smoke and mirrors. I said, I don't have any more discipline than you have. I just, what I, what I have done. And I, I think a lot of this is just a reflection of age, but also I can't discount the effect that 20 years of meditation have had, has had is I've been able to be brutally honest with myself about my abilities and my tendencies, right? So with, with writing my first book, which was a self-published book, I, the process was just dragging on and on and on three and a half, four years, still no book, you know, outlines and drafts, but no book. And then finally, I just got so tired of thinking about it that I created a contract. I sit, sat, went to whatever the word processing app was at the time, and I wrote a, pro, uh, a contract for myself. And between me and a friend of mine, and I said, uh, I am going to finish this book. It is going to be published ready by such and such date. It was like three months from that day. And, uh, and then I wrote a check out for $4,000, which at the time was you know, a pretty significant amount of money. It still is a significant amount of money for me right now, but at the time it was really significant. And, and I think I chose that amount because I only had like four or $5,000 in my account. And I wrote it to my friend and I postdated it to the date on the contract and I had him sign the contract. And his part was, you are obligated to take this check, cash it and spend it on whatever you would like to spend it on. That has nothing to do with me. And so um, once I went through all of that, the time to write mysteriously appeared. <laughs> there were no more excuses. And I think I finished the book a week or two early as a result. Whereas before, there were all kinds of excuses, right? And I just know my tendency to create, to manufacture excuses out of thin air uh, for what I don't feel like I have the time to do unless I have something on the line. So, so that got rid of that problem. Um, I... I, uh, I, I said, okay, look, if I'm going to stop eating sugar or, you know, processed foods, I need to make sure I, I eat something before I go to the grocery store. Cause if I don't, my cart is going to be full of chips and sweets and all kinds of stuff that I, that are going to taste good in the short term, but they're not going to be great for my overall long-term health goals. And so I try to make sure I do that every time before I go grocery shopping. And working out, yeah, I love working out, but only really in groups and only if I don't have to drive to a place to do it. So I found a little gym in my neighborhood where I was living at the time, started working out every day, changed my body goals. So all these things, you know, um, on the surface, if you just look at them and and you, you evaluate, oh, wow, this guy, you know, he's, I'm not, he's not like me. I can't do what he does. It's not, it's all bullshit. You can do anything. You just have to be honest with yourself. So the real Hmm. Goal is to be honest with yourself, brutally honest. And if you can do that, then you can put stop gaps in place where you keep falling short 
so that you can put yourself in proximity to whatever change you want to make. And that's really all that it comes down to is, are you close enough to it to be able to take advantage of it? Wow. Well, you've divulged a lot of secrets about yourself. And anyone <laughs> listening who wants Light Watkins to do something, obviously send him a contract <laughs> and, and, right. and, and, and a salad. That's right. Uh, and a dumbbell. And, <laughs> uh, and he's good. Well, Light, I just always so enjoy spending time with you. It is just a pure delight for me. I almost consider it a form of meditation mm. in itself because I am rarely so present. Uh, so I am, I am grateful for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Light Watkins. Keep abreast of everything that he's got going on at lightwatkins.com. And of course, feel free to email me directly. I always love hearing from you at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if you're not sick of me, follow me and my rantings on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.